1: Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm your erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser. Today's episode was recorded live at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts. That's where Hannah and Marcel teamed up with experimental college professor Lydia Brown to discuss representations of disability, disability, queerness, and race in the Harry Potter world. Now, Marcel asked me to add a quick note on sound quality. Our organizers ordered a soundboard, but it never came. Instead, we had to rig up a solution with our own gear. Now, live recordings are always a bit rough, so please forgive the stickier parts of this episode. And without further ado, here's the panel.
3: Um, Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Elise. And welcome! Thank you all for coming. The people on this panel can introduce themselves in a moment, but we just wanted to thank a few people before we got started, or groups mm-hmm. rather.
4: Yeah. So the Tufts Podcast Network is putting this event on, and like, have done a lot of really good work to like bring all of these beautiful people here and make sure they get paid for their time. So yay, Tufts Podcast!
3: Also, huge shout out to the Tufts Women's Center and LGBT Center um, for helping us pay for food and like giving us plates and things to eat it off of. Um, so yeah, thanks to them. Yeah.
5: <laughs> and we also have, if you feel so inclined about the food or the panel, um, and if you have the resources, we have like a makeshift
4: donations bucket. All the donations are going to Standing Rock. Um, So if you feel so inclined, put some money in the bucket. Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Thanks for coming. Yay. Yeah. Have a great night.
5: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Hannah McGregor, and I am one half of the podcast, Which Please?,
2: Hello, my name is Marcel Kosman, and I am the other half of the podcast, which please? And I am Lydia Brown. I
0: am teaching in the X college, the class Rethinking Disability from Public Policy to Social Movements, and I think there are a few of my students here. Um, I also currently have a very soaked through sock, and I'm unhappy about this fact. (laughs) So, first off, uh, we, I think, would all
5: like to thank uh, Emma and Elise for putting this together. It's an absolute delight to have been invited to come and speak with you all um, and to have the opportunity to meet Lydia and share some ideas. Um, this is, I'm having that thing where I keep forgetting that this microphone doesn't amplify me. <laughs> it just feels like it should be making me louder, but it's not. We're recording this for the podcast. So the format that this is going to take um, that we discussed in advance is we're going to spend some time as a panel having a collective conversation, particularly about disability and queerness in Harry Potter. And then whenever we get bored of talking to each other, we are going to open it up to the floor and get you to join in in the conversation. At that point, one of the two recorders that we're working with is going to head out into the group of you. If you would like to ask a question, but you don't want to be recorded, that is totally fine. Just say no thank you when the recorder makes its way to you. You can still ask us a question without your voice being on the podcast, but it's nice. Listeners like to, you know, hear you. Okay, that was the, that was the business portion of the evening. All right, are we? Yeah, yeah, let's do this. I would like to sort of throw things over to Lydia to start with, because uh, when Emma and Elise sent us out, an email saying, you know, this is sort of what I think the conversation should be about. Lydia immediately had so many interesting, exciting things to talk about, particularly about um, representations of neurodivergent characters in the Harry Potter world. Um, And the first point that you made in the email you sent us was... um, That you were interested in reading Hermione and Luna Lovegood as autistic characters. Um, I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a bit more about that.
0: Sure. I'm also in law school and in law school we have the phenomenon called cold calling, which probably only Hermione would actually enjoy and nobody else would ever enjoy it, and nobody does. In law school, some people refer to being in her first year as the 1L terror shit, because (laughs) at any time in your class of 100 people, the professor may call upon you and ask you to tell everything about the case in front of everybody, and you'll never know it's coming until after it's happened to you, unless you have a nicer professor. So I'm I'm used to that. Do, sort of. I do, am I being too professorial? It's <laughs> no. fine. Um, it's your point. Yeah, no, the, <laughs> one of the common practices in autistic community and online culture for a very long time now has been looking to see characters that look like us, that sound like us, that move like us. And many people who are well-known autistic bloggers, people who aren't well-known bloggers, but are very much in conversation around autistic culture will go through any book series, any movie series, and pull out the characters that, whether named explicitly or not, and usually the characters that are not named explicitly that are like us. Because something that you pointed out, I think, in, in your email back to me, I think it was you, that... Um it, it's not unique to Harry Potter but oftentimes the characters that are explicitly labeled autistic by the author they are canon autistic this character is supposed to be someone on the spectrum are written horrifically they're written as a collection of bad stereotypes they're not a relatable person and you you know that what they came from was the author saying my research is I looked up a diagnostic list of symptoms of autism a very medicalized pathologized definition and said okay if the symptoms of autism are deficient social interaction, eye contact avoidance, perseveration on a topic that nobody cares about, and inability to form relationships, then all you've done is created a character that is a collection of deficits, Mm -hmm. which is a character that is a reflection back to the audience of what the audience already perceives autistic people to be. And so the characters that are not labeled explicitly as autistic are the ones that are often much more recognizable, that when we read, watch, or hear them, We are thinking, that person is like me. The way people respond to this character is like me. The way this character acts is like me. And so for Hermione, who is much more a topic of this conversation than Luna, that comes into play because she's the one who everyone writes off as the know-it-all as obnoxious, as not understanding the social cues that other people expect her to have. And in a medicalized framing, right, that would be portrayed as she has a deficit socially or she has um, all of the intellectual capability but none of the social cognitive capability. But from an autistic culture perspective, all of that means is that she exists as a minority, neurologically, a neurominority, around people who don't share her way of existing in the world. And that looks like being a know-it-all. It looks like someone who doesn't socially fit in. It looks like someone who, in the first couple of movies, as the, uh, as the portrayal physically, someone whose hair is more unkempt and frizzy, somebody who uh, isn't conforming to conventional beauty standards, even if their body might still fall in line with conventional beauty standards. But as far as how they keep themselves looking. Um, for characters like Luna Lovegood, where there's less discussion, uh, it's everything from how she starts talking when other people don't realize she intended to have a conversation with them to how she perceives the world in a way that is fundamentally different from everybody else around her and how everybody else assumes, and, and, and it's even her, her name, the, the word Luna, she's crazy. <laughs> Luna, um, from the very patriarchal, ableist idea that women or people who are assumed to be women are necessarily going to be more mentally unstable because of our are, are cycles of ovulation. That <laughs> if you're menstruating at a particular time, then you have less capability to control yourself. The idea of women as neurotic or hysterical, it's literally embodied in her name and usually... In conversation, that's what I hear from people is oh, she's this crazy person. She's kind of naive. She's not a bad person, but she's crazy. Yeah. She's out of touch with reality. And for me, as an autistic and multiply disabled person, I read Luna as potentially autistic, potentially psych disabled, maybe both. Um, I don't think that those things have to be mutually, mutually exclusionary either. And um, it's fascinating and it's fulfilling to be able to look into literature and look for characters that might be like you when the, when it's explicitly labeled it's not it's nothing like who you are it does not match up to your experiences and when you're somebody like me occupying a place of both a lot of privilege and a lot of marginalization it's exciting when I can encounter anybody in fiction that seems to remind me of myself. And that's a lot of what the autistic community finds when looking to identify which characters actually resonate with us. And sometimes it's not even a hunt, right? It just happens. Yeah. You get into a series and partway in, you realize, wait, this character is just like me. How has nobody else talked about this? And you go online and you find out your whole community has. <laughs> and yes. you're thinking, oh my God, holy fuck. I'm not alone. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. Yeah.
5: That's what I, I I feel like, um, as a, I'm a a, former English professor now, I teach something else now, but as a former English professor, there's a lot of, we spend a lot of time, um, discouraging students from talking about literature as, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, not recognizable, uh, like recognizing yourself in your text right? Um. Relatable. That's the one. That's the one. The great scourge of relatability, right? Everybody, like you always say to your students when they're like, I love this character, they're so relatable. And you're like, okay, well actually, like we're trying to, literature is supposed to be a way to sort of enter into life experiences that are not your own, so so stop picking out only the characters that are just like you. Um, and that is, that is something that I think I, I at least have spent a lot of time teaching global literatures to... Um, like white kids from Alberta and being like, actually, you need to find the characters who aren't relatable. You need to find the ones who, who freak you out and think about those characters. Um, but the, the dismissal of relatability is also something that's coming from a position of privilege, right? That there is something incredibly powerful about finding a relatable character when you occupy a position where you are assumed to not be a relatable subject. Where you are
0: you know, somebody who doesn't see yourself represented in the world. And that's especially true when we talk about disability and in particular neurodivergence and mental disability because part of the definition and how mental disability is constructed is the idea that if you're mentally disabled, you're not knowable as a subject, that if you're mentally disabled, you're fundamentally confused, you're unable to relate to other people, you are unable to process the world around you or even recognize that the other people in the room are people and are human beings and exist. This is one of the core ableist tenets The definition of autism, the idea that autistic people lack theory of mind. Theory of mind is a concept. It's not a debunked concept. It is when it's applied to autistic people. But what it means is the ability to understand that you folks in the audience, right, my brain's not the same as yours. My experience is not the same as yours. That even my perception of the room, I'm looking at all of your faces, looking at me, and you're looking up and seeing the three of us. Just our literal visual perception, for those of you that are sighted, is not the same. That's what theory of mind means. And theory of mind, as applied to neurodivergent, autistic, other mentally disabled people, says we don't have the ability to recognize that other people exist or have thoughts or feelings. And so if we don't, then how could anybody understand that we do? And I I will say that one parallel I've drawn in my own experience as a neurodivergent person who's also queer and genderqueer a parallel is that queer kids, trans kids, and disabled kids often grow up isolated. We often grew up isolated. We may or may not have relatives who are out, also, known to be disabled, known to be queer, known to be trans. There may or may not be a few other kids in school. There may be someone down the block, rumors about somebody, a relative that no one wants to talk about, somebody who's not in your church anymore, not in your synagogue or your masjid anymore. But like, we grew up isolated. The difference for me has been that, as a queer person, there was an established queer community when I got to college. There was no established disability community. And in both queer spaces and disability spaces and trans spaces, right, we're, like, fighting for recognition. So the idea of relatability, how it maps upon disabled and neurodivergent people, is very much in, in this... There's almost no disabled characters in literature that are written as relatable people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're written as props, right? And, and I mean, this is true in some of the other examples that I'd pulled out and identified for you, like in in, in Neville Longbottom's parents, mm-hmm. we, we see them very, very briefly, and, it, and it's just said to us as a fact, we are supposed to accept it as a foundational fact, they went crazy, Yeah, mm-hmm. that like, they were tortured way too much. Um by the Death Eaters, and as a result, they lost their minds, and now they're stuck in St. Mungo's, yeah. and they will never get out.
5: And they're only a narrative device, right? right? They're there to signify the tragedy that is Neville's life. Right, and that
0: and Neville has a terrible childhood. Yeah,
5: like, oh, it's so sad because of what has happened to them, but they themselves don't have interiority or you know presence outside of that narrative function. Or that what's tragic about it is they had
0: these wonderful lives as Aurors, and, and now... I, to use the ableist language oh they're basically vegetables this is, this is the ableist language now they don't exist as human beings yeah.
3: that is,
5: that's a wonderful scene for, for unpacking that in the text though too right because that, that moment in St. Mungo's we see Neville being taken to visit his parents we get the sense that he doesn't get to visit his parents that much and we see that moment where his mother has given him a small token, do you remember what it is Marcel? It's a candy wrapper Thank you. She gives him this candy wrapper and then his grandmother takes it away. Right? And so there's just, his grandmother tells him to throw it away. He keeps it. Uh, Correct. It's kind of a brief textual moment that gestures towards there being something more happening in that relationship that our narrator can't perceive, but that might be sort of present under the surface. Like some, some sort of real... Emotionally resonant relationship between Neville and his parents that's just not available to us. Um, there's like there's something in that scene.
2: Yeah, I think I think that a, a generous reading of that would be um, that there is a kind of interiority that we don't have access to, but that we can imagine into it, um, and that the the author um, puts that in place for us so that we can read it. She puts in place for us these. Um, signposts so that we can see that there is uh, a rich backstory there but but then the resistant reading is that that's insufficient because it shouldn't be the job of people who have disabilities and people who are allied with those who have disabilities to like read those read for those signposts and create those worlds because they're not they're not provided there Um, and what happens I think a lot of the time is that people with neurotypical abilities will read those things and move on so you don't even read them as signposts to another richer backstory (laughs) you read those as like Oh, Neville has crazy parents, and poor Neville—he keeps a candy wrapper because he doesn't have any other way to connect with his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, when that's there, anyway, I feel—I feel that I have made my point on that. Yes.
5: Dot dot dot. Yeah, and the and the degree to which Neville is paralleled to Harry as being somebody who is parentless, mm-hmm. right? right. Uh, also undermines the thing I just said. That's fine.
2: Yeah. Yeah, like the the notion that Neville is parentless even though his parents are alive and well, they're just not like mentally equivalent to other parents who are alive and well. I yeah. Yeah, and that that's
0: exactly the the essence of the ableism is that if somebody has a mental disability, they are in fact not really a person. Uh this is the core of the work that that I do that on combating ableism and understanding it as a kind of oppression, right, is oppression dehumanizes its subject. Oppression says this person, their body, their existence is a site for violence because this person needs to be rendered legible within normative embodiment. So in other words, in plain language, this person can't exist the way they are. They have to be forced to conform or assimilate into the dominant culture, Mm -hmm whether that person is black, indigenous, Latinx, or other person of color, having to conform into whiteness. This is the history I, I, I have. The contours of my body as an East Asian person in a white supremacist society is that I get to be treated as a human or almost like a real person if I can take on the trappings of whiteness. That's where the myth of the model minority comes from. And and, and this is something that I don't, I don't think... in. A lot of critique that I've heard about Harry Potter's depiction of eugenics and of racial politics and the parallels that are drawn between Hitler's Third Reich and Nazi Germany, I don't think pick up on the complex layers of racial politics in the Harry Potter universe. Everything from not just, are you a pureblood wizard versus a mudblood, as the slur goes, but... Why is it that all of the elves are written in a particular category mm-hmm. as one category why are the centaurs put off into a separate category of their own mm-hmm. like and and in i've heard criticisms in of other high fantasy which is not the same thing as harry potter but of other high fantasy in which non-human races are really just projections of a white vision of to what Mm -hmm. black indigenous Latinx and other people of color are like, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether that is someone that's the indigenous person being exotified or the East Asian person treated as this foreign other, or the black person and um, being rendered through the lens of Mm anti-blackness. And in understanding the non-personhood that happens when disability is inscribed in somebody, what happens to Neville's parents, Alice and Frank, it's The ableism and any other form of oppression that targets the body, like, they have to exist together. You can't have the racism of, oh, the Ls aren't smart enough to exist on their own as independent creatures. They have to be tied as servants, basically as slaves, to the humans, to the human wizards, because they don't have the same level of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And that mirrors in the real world how ableism and racism play together. And like what you just pointed out with why is it that the neurodivergent and the disabled people are the ones who are saying, let's look at this gesture and let's create this world within it to understand what it could represent. Why is it the people of color who might be pointing out, Oh, part of the narrative is that elves have a uh, a a particular aptitude for very powerful magic, Mm -hmm. but it is constrained because of their enslavement, Mm -hmm. because of their de facto enslavement. Why is it that more or less people of color, are the ones who might point out there is another potential for a resistant narrative right there
2: so we we have talked a handful of times in the podcast about the the, the problems with using non human magical creatures as allegories for very real life human crises in particular or like forms of oppression and forms of violence that affect non white people in the real world. Um, and one of the things that uh, one of the things that I think is really worth um, putting pressure on when we talk about this, when we talk about Harry Potter in particular, and its usefulness in the ways that it sort of teaches bracket white able-bodied neurotypical close bracket readers about how other people are people, is that Harry Potter isn't high fantasy it takes place ostensibly in the real world, just in a magical corner of the real world. So when we use non-human beings as allegories for things that affect real human beings, essentially what we're saying is that the implication is that those real human beings are less human, and the only way that we can understand their experiences is by transposing them onto creatures for whom we can pity and that implicitly also, at the same time, in the, in the Harry Potter wizarding world, these other real human people are not experiencing the kinds of oppression and violence that exist in our real world. And we can believe that because it's not talked about. And because it's not talked about, it must not be happening. And so on.
0: I mean, even when you think about the racial representation of the human characters in both the books and the movies... Mm-hmm. There's, like, a million and one layers of problem. There's... <laughs> why is Hogwarts so fucking white? Like, like, why does it to
5: no degree represent the actual, like, makeup of the UK as a country? It's
0: the one wizarding school. And, yeah, you yeah, know, there's... It's a real question. question. <laughs> I, I am I'm currently... Um, blanking on their names but there's only a handful of characters and their names are right there there's
5: Cho Chang right the very embarrassing character with two last names um there's the Patils yeah the Patels yeah Um,
0: are they twins they were twins right yeah and Dean Dean Thomas
5: Thomas. Lee Jordan thank you yes we're gonna crowdsource this answer (laughs) Kingsley Shacklebolt yep but we can name them on one
0: hand the Wizarding Tournament The the foreigners, what are they? French and German (laughs) from the foreign (laughs) visiting schools. So and they're
5: so exotic.
0: So apparently, our acceptable representations of people of color are not as actual people. Like so, it's not even just that there's no actual portrayal. Actual racism and white supremacy, if it's supposed to be set kind of in the real world, but where are the non-white people? Uh, where are we? I, I have the I have this nagging sense that if I went to at least some cons that are focused around Harry Potter, that I would feel very very misplaced. And and I'm a light-skinned East Asian, but like there's <laughs> there's not many of us. Where are we? Um. So the question of relatability is not just does this person exist, is it representation, but how. Whether it's through presence or through absence. And um, that's something that's very important to me to pull out.
5: Yeah, we in the, the first episode of the podcast, um, we were talking about the representation of the goblins in the Harry Potter world who are
2: money lenders, money
5: lenders with large noses and dark skin
2: and claws. <laughs> and we were like, OK, so this is like
5: an over the top anti-Semitic trope. And we sort of spend some time saying, you know, well, well, let's give Rowling the benefit of the doubt back in the day when we were inclined to give Rowling the benefit of the doubt. I, I feel less so inclined now for reasons. I'm a
0: cynical pessimist. Yeah. Join the asshole club. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a lifelong paid membership.
5: <laughs> well, also, I think the magic in North America thing, which we can get into later if you want to. But that moment indicated to me that when Rowling actually has members of a community speak back to her and say, we, we don't like what you're saying about us, she doesn't do a great job of managing it. But... We, so we, we, we struck a deal in that first episode that we would recognize that the goblins are not, in fact, the Jews of the wizarding world if there was an actual Jewish person in the books, um, to which, uh, you know, a whole sea of listeners responded, there's one!
2: Just wait for it. Just wait. He's four books away, and there's one of him, and he's in the background of one scene. And then we find out that there are actually two more who come out in the movies later who are his grandmothers? Yeah, yeah. So his
5: grandmother is going to be in Fantastic Beasts and their locations. Um, And so that's it. So there's like... (laughs) There's like... One Jewish woman from the 1920s and then her grandson in present day. And that's it, too. Did you know that that was all the Jews in the entire world? It's it. That's it. The UK doesn't have other Jews in it. So, okay, let's... This The point that Marcel was making reminds me quite a bit of the conversations that were happening really recently around Rowling's... Um, unsurprising revelation that Lupin's werewolfism was intended to stand in as a sort of allegory for HIV and AIDS, Um, which for those of us who read the books closely um, and for most queer readers was something that was already quite readily apparent, right? Lupin is already a character who's really heavily coded as a gay uncle. Um, He's single, he's sort of uh, an embarrassment to the family. He's People don't trust him around children, so when the truth of his identity comes out, he has to be taken away from the children. Uh, he has a contagious disease that he got via a pedophilic act done to him as a child by a man. Like, the coding was already very heavily there, so when Rowling said, yes, in fact, that was what I was going for, m- many of us were like, yes, no, we know. Um, but... but thank you you know it's like at least she's validating the reading as opposed to saying you know serious black no no so straight um but uh the the this comes I just saw somebody make the, the same point you did which is why isn't there HIV and AIDS in the wizarding world like if you want to have a character who represents the stigma associated with being gay and being HIV positive, then just make a character gay and HIV positive. You don't have to make him a metaphor for that.
0: Why are we having to implicitly read all the queer characters? So, so apparently if wizards are a thing, supposedly around the world, not a single one is openly queer. Zero of them are openly queer. Okay, excuse me while my suspension of disbelief breaks. Mm-hmm.
5: Or as Tumblr would say, Harry just doesn't notice because it's not part of his journey. Right.
4: <laughs> true. Yeah.
5: So I want to add into this, you know, let's take that for let's take Lupin a little further and think more about the implications of using a metaphor of monstrosity to talk about being gay and being HIV positive. Um, so uh, the the moment when that revelation took place was when Rowling released some new short stories that contain additional back material about some of the canonical characters. And I want to read you just a, a sentence from that, which is the description of what happened to Lupin when he was attacked. It said, shortly before Remus Lupin's fifth birthday, as he slept peacefully in his bed, Fenrir Greyback forced open the boy's window and attacked him. And that, in a nutshell, so entirely points to the problem at the heart of this allegory, which is that Lupin becomes an exceptional werewolf insofar as he uh, rises above the situation, like what has happened to him. But his werewolfism is linked both not only to being a victim of violence, something that was, you know, forced on him against his will but is also linked to this intense moment of the stigmatization of gay sex the equating of the the gay figure in the person of Fenrir Greyback with pedophilia with violation with like the image of sneaking in a window while a child is asleep is a is a powerfully violent image and if that's what we're given textually to think about how we should stigmatize gay men less Um, I'm not convinced that that's an effective way even if we agree that using those kinds of allegories is okay I'm not convinced that that's an effective way to do so
0: one thing that that reminds me of is a lot of the rhetoric around trying to get federal and state funding to look into uh, treatment, medical treatment and services for people living with HIV and people with AIDS back during the AIDS academic epidemic. And there w- the Ryan White bill came about in part because of rhetoric about Ryan White as an innocent victim of AIDS. Mm-hmm. That was the language that was used to sell the bill to finally win it passage, Mm -hmm. that Ryan White was an innocent victim of AIDS. And what that rhetorical device tells us is that, like you just said about Lupin, Ryan White was an exceptional person with AIDS. Mm -hmm. Ryan is an exceptional one. And that the majority of people who have HIV or who have AIDS, it's your fault for it. It's an indication of a moral problem with you, which is part of the moralizing and the, the villainization of being queer. And so what, what you're talking about, that's what that makes me think of, is where's the history in the United States where we live, right? Well, I live, you don't. You live across the border, but it's close <laughs> enough, right? Well, where I live... It's also there. Whatever you're about to describe is also there. I'm sure. I mean, Canada is also a settler colonizer state, taking over indigenous people's land, so... Boom. There's, you know, that much in common. But... That's what it calls to mind for me, is that rhetoric of how the Ryan White Bill was passed. That the bill did create funding that has been incredibly useful for many people, right? And many queer people in particular. But... The How it had to be done, and I say had in a very loose sense of that term, I don't think that that is how we ought to ever try to force gaining more resources or challenging oppressive systems is through throwing people under the bus. But theoretically what we had to do to get that bill passed was to paint some people as, well, they're okay because they're, they're the good ones. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the racism and like I, I can be told you can be a good person of color because you're light skinned, and if you shut up about racism, then you can be a good person of color, and we can use you as our great token. Mm-hmm. So Lupin can be the good gay person because he doesn't give in to the animalish savage tendencies of being a werewolf, well, that language is not just uh, incredibly stigmatizing and ableist against people living with HIV or AIDS. It's racist language. Mm-hmm. Even though Lupin is a white character, I'm not saying that people are being racist against Lupin. I'm saying that what this comes from is racial concepts. Yeah. That's what I'm saying that that comes from. Yeah. yeah.
5: And ultimately, in order to be a heroic figure, Lupin needs to be reinstated into this like heteronormative reproductive order, right? That he needs a female partner, he needs to have a child, like he needs to sort of be, be brought back under control, and then and then he can be a good guy.
2: One one point that I that I would like to make, not in J.K. Rowling's favor. This was probably accidental on her part, but <laughs> in terms of uh, a kind of way to resist the heteronormativity of Lupin's marriage to Tonks, is that Tonks is an, anim, is an animagus? Animagus? Yeah. Animagus? Mm. Hard G no, or soft G? Uh, what
5: Metamorph- is she? She's
2: a Metamorph Magus. <laughs> right, because, <laughs> because Sirius Metamorph- is the anime. <laughs> just God, okay. She sorry. Change, she's a shape changer. She's a shapeshifter. Um all of which is to say that the one I guess like the one positive, not heteronormative way to read their relationship. Um, is that we don't actually have? We cannot possibly presume what their sex life is like because there are so many exciting possibilities. Um, so that's the one thing. My favorite reading of that relationship is like, who even? Why would any
5: of you assume that she only takes like, like, like one
4: form? Gendered
5: form. Yeah. Like.
2: Um, she can be anything. But, like, but then to complicate my own point, and we have talked about this in the podcast before, um, there's also zero textual evidence that Lupin wants to be in a relationship with Tonks. And is in fact a, there is, in fact, a ton of textual evidence that he does not want to be in a relationship with Tonks. And so it is also, at the same time, very um, easy to read that relationship as an attempt on his part to, big scare quotes, fit in to normative society and belong to normative society. So basically, Tonks is a beard. <laughs> yeah.
5: Oh, and she could turn into a beard. She Sorry. can grow a beard. Might be taking it a bit far.
2: Um, Marcel, will you talk to us about squibs? I can talk to you about squibs. Um, so Lydia set this up really nicely um, earlier on in talking about the ways in which um, the ways in which the autistic community typically finds itself represented in literatures. Um, and Harry Potter is a really good example of the ways in which um, disability gets mapped onto really problematic stereotypes. And so what I had done is I had um, pulled out three key examples. There, there might be more that are not coming to coming to mind, but the three key examples are Argus Filch, Arabella Figg, and Ariana Dumbledore, who all have a lot in common with one another, um, but in particular, they're what I think you could boil down to, unlovableness. Mm-hmm. Um And Ariana is a little bit of an exception because she was young and she's remembered very lovingly and fondly because she was a child when she died. Um, but both uh, Mrs. Figg and Argus Filch are, are presented to us in the books as being kind of gross. As assholes. Yeah, like assholes. M- Mrs. Figg is... Um, She, like, when Harry stays with her, when the Dursleys go away, she has to make sure that he's miserable so that he's allowed to keep coming over, which is, I guess, forgivable, but also, like, you'd think that they could have had some kind of bargain, like, I'm going to give you cake and we're going to be friends, but just don't tell the Dursleys, tell them that you hate it. And he'd be like, cool. And that's revealed a lot later on, too. That's
0: not revealed up front. Yeah, Yeah,
2: definitely not. Um, But Argus Filch is is for sure a really great example of a like heinous vile sort of Igor kind of character who like lives in the dungeon who is a real penchant for torturing children like that's what he really wants out of his job he's gross he has a he has a cat both he <laughs> they and both they both have cats because as we know unlovable people only have cats there's an there's an undergrad thesis in there for somebody.
5: Squibs and
2: cats in Harry Potter. Um so yeah, so so one of the things that really struck me, so when we were first sort of emailing about what it is that we would talk about on this, on this panel, um, and Lydia had sent a, a really thoughtful list of um, the different characters and the ways that we can read them uh, in terms of having different kinds of disabilities, um, I was really taken aback by how vile the representation of magical disability is. Um in the Harry Potter books. And the only so like going back to to Filch, for example, one of the only moments of sympathy that we have for him is when Harry is for some reason in his office. I can't remember the details, I'm sure some of you oh. do. Um and like <laughs> sees sees Filch's like pamphlets for basically like snake oil. It's basically like whatever, like something that you can buy to, to learn how to do magic. And you have this moment where you feel sympathy, but what you actually feel is pity. You don't feel empathy because he's not a person who all of a sudden you can identify with. It's not like, I also wish that I was a wizard. It doesn't feel like that. Instead, it's sort of like, oh, here's a pathetic old man who really is so hateful in so many ways, but you can pity him because he was born different, and it's not his fault. And that's not an adequate representation of disability. None of these characters are an adequate representation of disability. Um, Similarly with... Ariana Dumbledore we get a sense that she was or rather like her representation is different in the sense that she was made magically disabled by being attacked by some muggle boys and that's very vague it, it, we're not entirely sure what happened there
5: again linked to, to sexual violence yeah. right again sort of this 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 important traumatic moment where the person is a victim of something terrible done to them and that justifies the way they are
2: and so we understand that she was never the same, but that that never being the same is not read as lovable in, in a different way. It's never, never was the same, all of a sudden becomes the family secret that gets hidden away. And her attack, the knowledge of her attack, is used as evidence that she wasn't a squib. So it's not that she was born this way. This is something that happened to her. It wasn't her fault. And it's, the whole thing is... Bad. It's not, it's bad.
0: You know, another aspect, just listening to you talk about this and thinking about it right from histories, particularly as an autistic person, is the use of applied behavior analysis and its history with O. Ivar Lovas, who is known for his work on the Feminine Boys Project, which was federally funded to try to look at how can we target boys that are not displaying conventionally heteronormative masculine behavior so they seem feminine, And that means we think they're at risk for becoming homosexual. And how can we stop them from being feminine so they won't become homosexual? And the techniques he used in that study... In that research, he transferred over to autistic children. This was uh, one of the early, some of the early research on conversion therapy, right? And the first boy, whose name I honestly can't remember, and I feel really awful about that, who was in Overalovus's research, he touted for decades, and in some textbooks is still listed as a successful case. When he was in his 30s, he killed himself. And so, for autistic children, right, we grow up being taught. Like, whenever we find out that we're autistic, and there are a lot of racial and gender disparities in who gets identified when, I say identified because diagnosis is very medicalizing, I don't like that, but who gets identified when is, there's a lot of disparities along racial and gender lines, and people considered girls get diagnosed a lot later, people who are black or Latinx get diagnosed a lot later, Um, and when that happens it becomes this thing of you can't be what you are you have to you have to become neurotypical you cannot flap you cannot rock you have to make eye contact and basically not become autistic anymore It was even said to me at one point oh when you go to college hopefully you won't be autistic anymore and, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, so, you know, m- maybe in like a few years, I won't be queer anymore, too. Oh, oh, and maybe, maybe by the time I die, I will finally become white, damn it. I will finally become white. I will reverse Rachel Dolezal, but as an Asian. And, and that's what that makes me think of with Argus Filch, is it's not just, it's the pity, it's that, oh, he's trying really hard to be the better kind of person. That he's not. But he's really just a defective wizard. That's what he is. He's a defective wizard. And that's what that calls to mind.
5: This is reminding me of some of the really excellent scholarship done by fantastic Canadian feminist literary scholar Helen Hoy, who towards the end of her career decided that she was close to retirement and that she would just make it her job to just, like, piss people off. Um, and, so, and she also, at the time, and still, had recently begun um, caring quite a lot for... Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the details here, but had a very close family member um, with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And so she became very interested in the problem of FASD and the problem of diagnosing FASD because in order to successfully diagnose it, um, you have to be able to confidently say that the mother was drinking during pregnancy. Um, and the government is very comfortable assuming that, for example, indigenous women, whether they admit to it or not, were probably drinking during pregnancy. And so F- FASD um, diagnoses are much higher in the indigenous population than they are, for example, in white middle class populations. Um, where it it may in fact also have been the case but uh, the sort of assumption that white women are automatically better mothers means that the diagnosis rate is lower and because it is so frequently undiagnosed Helen started to go through particularly narratives of childhood and find characters who were treated as problem children and talk about those narratives as FASD narratives and what that does for our sort of understanding for a for sort of destigmatizing of you know, neurodivergence in literature, and she got in the national newspaper for suggesting that Anne of Green Gables might be um, an FASD child, uh, you know, told that she was betraying her nation, essentially. Um, But it is, it does become a, when you start to actually think about the politics and the history around diagnosis, then there's supposed to be something really subversive in finding those narratives in the characters who aren't supposed to be like that.
0: You know, another aspect of that with fetal alcohol syndrome is fetal alcohol syndrome uh, spectrum disorders and reactive attachment disorders, when, when they are identified in children in white middle class households, it's often adopted children of color. Uh, I am... I am a transracially and transnationally adopted East Asian child of color into a white middle class family. And there was a lot of contention when I was in middle school over, was I autistic or did I have reactive attachment disorder? And it was actually explicitly said, what was explicitly said was, we think, misgendering me, of course, we think that she has reactive attachment disorder because she was abandoned and in an orphanage before she was saved. So just more racism seeping into this. I can talk about white supremacy all day long, but I think I've hit my Should quota. Should and
5: must. I think I've hit my
0: quota of pissed off white
2: people today. <laughs> That's um, do. You... Uh, yeah, I was just going to add just for an FYI that um, a friend of ours who is a nurse once told me that actually in white households, uh, the children with, uh, sorry, how did she word it? She said that um, ADHD is much more commonly diagnosed among white children uh, even though they have the same symptoms as uh, as FASD and so, it tend- so that is one of the ways in which racism plays out um, and again, ADHD is one of those things that you can say to the parents, it's not your fault you couldn't have done anything whereas FASD is a you are a bad person, you are a bad parent. You yeah. are not white yeah.
5: Yeah. so i I want to bring this back a little bit, um, maybe as we're we're wrapping up and thinking about opening up to questions. Um, I want to bring this back a little bit to the to the question of the role of metaphor or allegory in the Harry Potter books, right and and what it does for you, both the incredible value of these fantasy stories in which this sort of non-identity of the world we're reading with our own opens these spaces for us in which we can start to find ourselves where we don't find ourselves in other texts, opens these spaces where where we can also in really important ways read our our whatever's happening in the world right now into them. Um, and sort of holding on to that value uh, even while we hold on to the critique at the same time, right? I mean, this is a thing we say over and over again about Harry Potter and about all readings is that you have to be able to critique the thing you love. You have to be able to push push back against it and say it could have done better. Um, we're going to keep insisting on better even while we read these books and are comforted by them and love them. Um, and I think that problem of the way that All of our protagonists in Harry Potter are white characters who are metaphors for marginalized experiences is one of the really key ways we need to push back um, because I find myself... Um, in the midst of the resurgence of white supremacy and white nationalism, which people of color know never went anywhere, but it's becoming very painfully obvious to everyone right now. You mean painfully obvious to white people? Painfully
0: obvious to white people,
5: yes. Let's be yeah. really
0: specific. It's not painfully obvious to us. Yes. Yeah,
5: exactly. Right. It's like, for, for whom is the, is the current political scenario surprising only for those? Only white people. Only right. white people. Yeah, so in that moment, I think it's incredibly important to look at a text that normalizes whiteness and allows, sort of re-centers whiteness as um, a, a default identity that can then itself become a metaphor for experiences of marginalization that are real, right? Which is to say that there are people of color at Hogwarts. You didn't have to use a metaphor for black people There are black people at the school. You didn't have to use a metaphor for indigeneity. There are indigenous people in this world. Rowling made that really clear to us, Um, you know? so, So what is the role that that metaphor is playing?
0: Yeah, one thing that this is making me think of is an essay that came out a year ago by an Asian-American novelist, also an East Asian. I cannot remember his name, and now I feel more bad that I'm just not remembering names today. I had a law exam today. I'm just going to use that as my <laughs> excuse. And he wrote an essay about how uh, he he'd written a novel that was very widely acclaimed when it was published. And it was a novel that, in which his characters... He's an East Asian guy. And his main characters were black people who were living at the time of chattel slavery in the South. And he's not from the South. And he's obviously not black as an East Asian who is not mixed race. And the criticism he got, it wasn't, from, it wasn't primarily from black people. It was from white people who were saying, oh my God, it's so stunning that you wrote about people that are not Asian. And so the essay he wrote about, and I haven't read the book, so I don't know, and obviously I'm not black, so I can't speak to what anti-blackness feels like, so I don't know if the book was problematically anti-black in any way. But the essay that he wrote was about the backlash he got from white people, white literary critics, saying that it was basically this amazing, stunning thing that he wrote about people that were not like him. And, And this normalizes how white people, like J.K. Rowling, write about... People all the time who are not white people and win prizes for it. Like you win prizes for it, like if you're in blackface or yellowface on TV, you win prizes for it. Like if you are a white non-disabled person getting up and playing a disabled person on, on in the movies, you win like an Oscar for that. Or you,
5: you're a cis man and you play a trans you, woman and you time. win Personally an award for it.
0: Yep. yep, you're cis men and playing trans women, and and and, and or, or straight people playing gay people. But like, but usually it's white people in all these categories. It's white person who is then also playing this additional marginalized experience and so white authors are treated as cosmopolitans like white people get to be omniscient narrators like white people are able to learn about and write about characters that are different from them if they choose and they'll get an award for it because oh my god you wrote about someone different and then when writers of color like this east asian guy writes about someone who does not share his racial experiences Suddenly, it's like this this stunning revelation. So, for me as an East Asian writer, I'm, I'm working on um, yet another novel manuscript now, where the characters are a variety of racial backgrounds. Some are East Asian, and some are various other races. Other people of color or white, other sexual orientations than mine, other genders than mine, other disability statuses than mine. I know that I'm going to get that kind of criticism of like, oh my God, you wrote about people that don't have your experience. As though, as an East Asian guy, or for me as an East Asian person. We can only write about East Asian characters but, but 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 white people can write about anybody. white people get to be the experts on everybody, but i 'm only allowed to speak from my experience as an East Asian person in fiction and i 'm not saying that we don 't have a responsibility to try to avoid writing fucked up things in our fiction, like you know we 're talking about but but that somehow only white people are allowed to do this and usually get away with all of it because white people excuse them and And that, that's something that, I I mean, I think we need need to bring that into the conversation, right? Is that how white people are allowed to be the experts on everybody. And anyone that's marginalized, a person of color, disabled, queer, we're expected to only be able to ever write about people who have our exact same experiences. In disability world, we call that the self-narrating zoo exhibit. I'm expected to be a personal educator for everybody, just about my individual experiences with being autistic. And I'm not allowed to talk about anybody else's experiences of being autistic, even from a, this is what people have told me, this is what in the community we know to be true for a majority of people. I'm not allowed to talk about that, because I can just talk about my personal experiences and leave the philosophy and the politics to the experts, aka the non-disabled people.
2: It um, it reminds me of how readily the literary community will uh, will um, accept autobiographies written by people of color and especially written by women of color who who have experienced like extreme violence. We love those books because they like allow us to feel like we're really learning about other people because it's autobiographies, but. If you ask somebody who reads this kind of, like, these types of books, like, can you name, can you recommend any good novels by, like, queer people of color? Or could you name for me an author that you recommend that I read who is not a white, able-bodied Western person? Um, And they can't think of any, but they will have, like, a handful of autobiographies that they've read recently that are so great that's how, That's what yeah. that was making me think about, yeah
5: the functioning in the confessional mode mm-hmm. that that thing,
0: yeah mm-hmm. you know one thing I wanted to make sure we talked about, like since I realized we've now been talking for like <laughs> God, an for hour so long i'm
5: <laughs> so sorry, I was like I was like, how long could we possibly go we'll go to questions really quickly. I want to talk about a couple You're a things. interesting
0: mm-hmm. is that a compliment? Yes. yes, okay, wait, you said that a little hesitantly. No, it was definitely a compliment. Okay. Uh, well, you know, my exam today was in evidence, and in evidence we talk about the reliability of witnesses' statements. <laughs> so uh, two things that I wanted to really hit on before we open up for questions and answers was, one, the, one of the explicit portrayals of disability is Voldemort. Mm-hmm. In two ways, Voldemort is supposed to be read to us as a psych disabled person, almost the trope of the lone wolf, read white male school shooter mm-hmm. kind of person who grows up to be this evil bad person because he wasn't loved enough, and also through physical disability, through how he looks, he's portrayed like in this long history of portraying the villains as having a deformity or some kind of a physical disability. I mean, look at uh, J- uh, the James Bond, uh, the movie that came out in 2012, the one Skyfall. The villain played by the the Portuguese actor, who's I cannot remember the, either the actor or the villain's names. Uh, was it Javier Bardem? Was uh, he yes. the was he the Javier. was he the villain in that movie?
5: Yes. You, uh, oh, I ask you about Harry Potter. You have all the answers. <laughs> I ask you about James Bond. You all look at me like I just invented it.
0: So Javier is that villain in that movie? This is recent, right? Uh, very recent. Has missing teeth, and uh, all of his mouth has become uh, has become deformed, has has acquired a cosmetic disability because of a past attack that he survived. And that's part of his key personality as this villain. Like, we see that with, with the Joker in Batman, has both of those aspects, like with Voldemort, someone who's supposed to be read as, this person's psychologically unstable and physically deformed. And so Voldemort is just another representation of how... It's when it becomes whiteness, see, white people and even sometimes other people of color will say, oh, well, white people get it off, get off on being evil because they can say it's not really their fault because they have a mental illness. And really, that's just ableism. When you can't target a white person because of racism, because if the person was black, Latinx, or was racialized as being Muslim, we know what we would call them if they were the bad guy. But if it's a white person, it's like, oh, well, we can't put you into the racial box since you're white. Let's go to ableism instead. Let's use ableism instead. And so the person isn't getting off. All that we're getting is a horrible caricature that results in real harm to actual disabled and neurodivergent people, especially the ones that are actually people of color, who are the most likely to be targeted by police, who are the most likely to be locked up, who are the most likely to be taken out of school over the assumption that when you occupy a body that is racialized and made disabled in a criminal way, that because of your race and because of your disability or our assumptions about your race and your disability are criminal, then you are the most at risk. And that brings me to the other thing that I wanted to make sure to talk about, which is the complete lack of critique about what Azkaban represents. Mm-hmm. About Azkaban represents an extreme form of solitary confinement, where even as this is explained in the narrative is that the... Um, oh, shit, I just blanked on the name for the mentors. Mm-hmm. That's what they're called. Law school. And all the information comes in, and it chucks everything else out. The dementors are serving as guards because they suck the life and the joy out of the people inside, and that if you are sentenced to receive the kiss from a dementor, then you basically don't exist as a human being anymore. It's another image of the ableist idea of a vegetable, almost, that you're not really a person anymore because what makes you a person will be taken from you. And what, for me, is 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 irresponsible about this is that it doesn't show the people who you, who would actually in the real world where Harry Potter is supposedly based actually be swept up into a carceral system in Azkaban who are suffering is that it's 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 narratively written as well it is really these really bad people the worst of the worst and the ones that we know of that are named are people who are either actually really bad people or who are falsely believed to be really bad people like with Sirius and and in the real world in the real world, as hopefully you all know, and if you don't, my God, where have you been living, the, 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 the mass incarceration in the United States and the history of incarceration and institutionalization actually in both the U.S. and Canada right, disproportionately in vast numbers targets black people followed by Latinx and indigenous people. And the numbers that I've heard from other disabled advocates and activists, particularly black, indigenous, and other people of color, is that somewhere between 50 and 70%, depending on which number you're using, of all people that are incarcerated are disabled or deaf, which means that the vast majority of people disproportionately who are locked up and shut out in society are black folks who are also disabled or deaf. And this is not acknowledged anywhere. So that is, the, that is the cut of people, not people who look like me, people whose brains might be like mine, but not people who look like me, who are subject to the torture of solitary confinement. And that's the irresponsibility of Azkaban to me, is that it represents something that was, oh, it's inhumane because it was some bad people who maybe something bad should happen to, but not because of what it did to people psychologically not because of the creation of new disabling experiences through trauma and through, uh, through torturing how somebody's brain functions, whether you're disabled or not when you come in, you're likely to leave with a disability. And the real world, it, it, it can't sit around waiting for some people to say, let's look for this critique. The real world is spinning on. Right, right now, and real people are suffering, and real people are dying, and when the fictional representation of something that actually takes people's lives on a daily basis is not written in a way that accounts for that reality, that's a problem. That's a problem for me.
5: Okay, let's, let's thank you for that. Um, I would really love to open this up, and and have you add into this conversation ask us to speak more on points, introduce other things you would like us to to talk about that we haven't touched on yet. I made an entire list and I didn't get to everything. (laughs) Okay, so.
0: I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
3: Hi. Um, so this sort
5: of goes back to what we were talking about with ableism a little bit. But as we were discussing um, Neville Longbottom and his parents, I was thinking because I remember... After Harry returns to his dorm, he thinks he often got pity for being an orphan, but thinking about it, he often thought, he thought that Neville actually deserved their pity more. And so I kind of was hoping you could talk about how this world of Harry Potter is constructed in such a way that people who are suffering from, dis- who have disabilities or are suffering from mental illness, are their fate is seen as worse than death. And like, there is no evidence of any form of mel- mental health care within the Harry Potter world, and I was wondering if that was something we could talk about because that deserves to be talked about. <laughs>
0: yeah, so very real things. One thing is, um, even just, and not to just stick you under the hot light, but just how rhetorically. The fear of not just the pity is related to fear. You can't separate them. The fear of disabilities embedded into the popular imagination is the assumption that if you have a disability, you must be suffering. Right. So not to stick you in the hot seat, but right. that Like this is what you've just said. And this is normal. The statement you just made is how we, on an average daily basis, encounter descriptions of disability, especially mental illness, is someone who suffers from it. The assumption that to have a disability is a fate worse than death. Here's how that plays out in the real world. In the past couple of decades, over 400, something like 450, disabled people have been murdered by their family members or caregivers that we know of. Because many times it's not reported, in the news, if it is reported, the fact that it's a uh, potentially wrongful death is not included, that it was suspicious, or that the person had a disability might not be reported. This is what we know about. Over 400, 450, right? And in every single one of these cases, the narrative is the same. The narrative is the parent or the caregiver truly loved this person, but they snapped from the stress of the burden of having to take care of somebody with special Needs That language is also ableist because it says our needs are somehow this burdensome thing in capitalism and ableism that other people's needs aren't. And that therefore it's sad and tragic that they killed this person that they were supposed to care for, but it's understandable. You need to walk in the parents' shoes because you don't know what it's like to have to live with somebody like that. This is a real consequence. Here's another real consequence. In the uh, conversation around whether or not physician-assisted suicide should be legalized or not legalized, in research that, was done on the, the research that was done on the topic of people who were surveyed who said that they would consider choosing assisted suicide, the number one reason that people indicated... So statistically, the number one reason that people indicated was that they were afraid of becoming a burden on their family members or their loved ones. And so it wasn't even so much, I am experiencing severe pain and suffering, but I am afraid that I will be. And that's why I think I would like for this to happen. And so here's a disparity. Regardless of whether we believe that, you know, you should be able to choose to kill yourself or not, when someone says I'm feeling suicidal because I'm queer and I'm being bullied... Or someone says, I'm feeling suicidal because I'm the only kid of color in my school. Or I'm feeling suicidal because I've just survived a very sexually violent act. Usually our reaction as a community is to say, how can we help you? How can we support you in not committing suicide? That's usually the response. And narratively, in the popular imagination, in actually how we talk to each other, someone says, I'm thinking about killing myself or I'd rather kill myself than end up a vegetable. We usually say that's the brave and heroic choice. Because who wants their body to be like that? This is the real world consequences that disabled people get killed by their family members and disabled people are more likely to feel pressured into choosing death and not offer the same suicide prevention that we would assume should be offered to other people. Regardless of whether we decide societally should we allow people to choose to kill themselves or not, there's a disparity in how we apply that, right? And, and so... The idea that to be disabled is, is worse than to be dead has real-world life-and-death consequences on actual disabled people. Like there's, uh, one of the reasons that Autism Speaks is so hated is that about 10 years ago, in one of their public service announcements, which they've never apologized for, their vice president at the time is on video saying that she thought about sticking her autistic kid in a car and driving off a bridge. But the only reason she didn't was because she had another child, Reed, non-disabled. She had another child who'd be waiting for her at home. In the video, you can look up this video, it's still on the internet. The autistic kid who is able to understand what she's saying, this kid was like in middle school or something at the time, not like a two-year-old, like able to understand her is sitting in the room as she says this. They've never apologized for this video. The idea that you can speak about is as though we're not here because we basically might as well be dead because, you know, at least if I was dead, there'd be an end to it. But if I was alive and like you, then I wouldn't really be there. That has real-world consequences. And so you raise a really great point that why is it that that what happened to Neville's parents is seen as, oh, this should be something more pitiable than what happened to Harry's parents? It ties into this ableist narrative that disability is a fate worse than death. And that comes directly out of ableism. Okay. I was wondering if we could talk about the potential of Voldemort being read as a queer character.
2: I'm, yeah. Uh, Sorry? Did you want to take that first? Sure. Um... Yeah, yeah. So one of so so one of the ways that this has come up uh, a handful of times when we and um, what we've talked about in the past is the ways in which uh, Voldemort's uh, asexuality is being read as um, violent and a and a, um, and a reflection on his villainy. Right. So his kind of particular effeminacy, he's not the he's not the kind of villain who is a like big, scary man who takes many wives in that kind of like sexual predator way. He's a sexual predator. And the fact that you are not afraid he's going to sexually assault you. He is like his asexuality is seen as what makes him deviant and creepy and disturbing and and like really fundamentally wrong. Yeah, yeah. So there's two things
5: that work there, right? Like there's on the one hand, you can read Voldemort as a character who is in some way coded as queer. There's you know because there is this way that Tom Riddle is this sort of um, sexualized, um, in some ways effeminate uh, character, and then we have the way that um, Ralph Fiennes chooses to portray Voldemort in the movies, which also has this sort of um I don't even know how to get at it. <laughs> strange sexuality to it sure um but one of the one of the vets you know i'm gonna come to regret that uh but that's one of the ways that we've come back to him as a character is around this idea of his sort of uh failure to fit into any recognizable forms of sexuality um that is to say that he reads in a lot of ways as an asexual character that he is um uh, as a sex-repulsed asexual character in particular, that he is uninterested in sexuality and that his sex, his sex repulsion becomes um, just part of his villainy uh, in a way that implies, again, that asexuality is um, other, that it is um, perverse in some way, that it is unrecognizable in a sort of, you know, a, a, a protagonist or a, a recognizable character. Um, and that's something that really got driven home, I thought, in people's responses to, um, oh, Cursed Child, spoiler alert, plug your ears for a second. Um, the presence in the Cursed Child of uh, uh, the Child of Voldemort. And of so many people I heard coming back and saying, like, well, that doesn't make any sense because like Voldemort would never have a child and making jokes like, you know, does he even have a penis in this way that sort of ended up really playing into the, the, we code Voldemort as a villain by coding him as lacking in a recognizable sexuality. Um, So, so that, I have been finding, has even been coming up more, um, now that we've actually been forced via this new canonical piece of the narrative to think about Voldemort having sex. All of a sudden, like a whole bunch of people freaked out in a way that I thought was pretty indicative of where the thinking was at around Voldemort as a character in the first place.
0: Yeah, I think adding to that, right, is that asexuality as an asexual person is often used as this, it's evidence that there's something wrong with you. And that's why not obviously every single one of us, but for many of us in asexual spaces, we claim queerness because if our asexuality, right, is treated as this deviant thing that means there's something wrong with us that we have to be forced into, it's not a, just a heteronormative ideal, it's a heterosexual normative ideal, then it comes with the same kind of baggage that, that other queer people who are sexual experience, invalidation, dismissal, dismissal, erasure, being told that we can't possibly understand our bodies or know what our bodies are like or what our bodies want or what our bodies feel, being subjected to sexual coercion and to control of who we are. And so for me, like what you're bringing up, the... Assumptions that the comments that people make. Oh, does Voldemort even have a penis? Like this is also something that is hyper masculinized and like incredibly anti-trans. Uh, of oh, if you have a penis, it's an indica- it's an indication of being an actual man, and of being the heterosexual normative man, someone that is worthy of respect, and that as a as a villain, that we have to find a way to attack him not for what he does and what he believes but for the kind of body we think he has and that's fundamentally problematic because if he's a person that occupies a place of a lot of privilege well, what about the people who don't occupy that place of privilege who are going to be faced to an even more amplified version of this body shaming and this hypermasculinity and the enforced uh, like the deviance attributed to asexuality that's what that brings up for me Hello. Um, so
3: previously when you um, uh, re-talked about, I guess, um, the uh, werewolfism being a metaphor for HIV and uh, queerness, how does that change sort of the implication of, you know, Sirius setting up Snape to be attacked by Lupin, but then James saves him? Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
5: that's what so okay so <laughs> that's uh, just so I, that was great uh, right so that that let's say we are reading Lupin right here as being a queer figure so that ties into the image of um serious setting up Snape to get attacked by Lupin as a sort of reinforcement of the figuring of um, homosexuality. And I'm using like gay and homosexual intentionally here because I want to be specific about the kinds of tropes that are being rendered in the representation of Lupin, that they're not queer tropes writ large. They're very specific, like gay male experiences. Um, Uh... So that, that that reinforces the image of it as being predatory, um, as being sort of foisted on people in an unwanted way, right that that sort of snake becomes a, available to that to that victimization. Um, but I think that it also just reminds us of how uh, how much homoeroticism, queerness, desire there is latent in the entire set of relationships between um, Snape and Sirius and Lupin and James. Um, and how, like, what is, it's so, it is so clear to me as a reader that there is this really sort of dense backstory between those characters that has a lot to do with, with desire and with relationships that are not unfolded for us. Um, which is why, again, I, I referenced in passing um, a reader asking, Rowling, is Sirius gay? and Rowling saying, no, absolutely not. And how very strongly a certain portion of the Harry Potter fandom responded to that because that, that reading of like Sirius and Lupin as being in love with each other and people who can't be together because of this whole set of scenarios, which also takes the piece of the narrative that you're talking about and makes it complicated and messy and weird, but in maybe productive, interesting ways, um, to have her foreclose that so authoritatively, and I know authoritatively she's the author, I know she, what she does, she like authoritatively states things by definition, but, but to foreclose that possibility seems to take a whole piece of the novel that I think is really exciting for many of us who are queer readers and just be like, no, no, nope, can't do it, people are only gay if I say they're gay, and only Dumbledore is gay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the one gay and, and not even out canonically yep. and who
5: P.S. looks just like everybody else because that is Rowling's final statement on queer characters that they are unrecognizable in their queerness right you know that famous tweet that she wrote like you know you didn't notice Dumbledore was gay because gay people just look just like everybody else it's like <laughs> no. Uh, sorry, the face I'm making doesn't translate well to an uh, audio medium. I apologize, <laughs> listeners, I'll send you a picture.
3: Um, as you were talking about um, diversity and the problem of um, when, cre- uh, when um, world-building a fantasy novel and having people in the real world who are, you know, differently abled or something like that and have it being transferred into you know fantastical creatures is a problem i just remembered that um the actor who plays professor flitwick also plays grip hook and that is the those are the only two little person speaking Mm -hmm. character roles in the entire series at least that is represented in the movies and why did they double cast him and nobody else? It's not that hard. It's Harry Potter.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It also suggests like we're willing to hire one non-normatively bodied person, but only one. And that person has to be a prop in every circumstance. Yeah. Um, So... I, I can't take credit for this because this is, uh, this is the point that a friend of ours, our friend Neil, made about the ways in which um, non-normatively, non-normatively bodied people function as props in exactly what you're saying with Flitwick um, and with uh, the goblins in Harry Potter. Um, and, and it's one of those things where um, in the way that the world is constructed – it's not that there are people with bodies that are different shapes and sizes. It's that there are people who are either part, um, in, Hagrid's, in Hagrid's situation, for example, where Hagrid is part giant, and that is why he's so big. And with Flitwick, I think it's implied somewhere that he has some kind of like magical creature blood somewhere. Part, part goblin? Yeah, he's part goblin. Park Goblin, yeah. So it becomes in this world impossible to perceive that there might just be like different shapes and sizes of bodies um, among non-magical creature humans, which is vi- like again goes back to that <clears throat> goes back to that perspective where the stories are be the stories are presupposing um, a, a white normative able normatively and able bodied. Listenership or not listenership, readership and viewership, and attempting to teach that readership and viewership how to imagine other people existing in the world without like without having space to value difference and instead are like, but look at the ways in which we are the same, that is where we bond our differences don 't need to be meaningful it 's the ways in which we are the same.
0: It's the trope that we have in disability community of oh you're trying to get your five gold stars for not being an asshole, <laughs> and th- that is what we somehow want the privileged, powerful, dominant people. So that that's the lesson we want them to learn is that if I don't say a slur and I occasionally hold a door open, and I and I think about what are words that might be offensive and eliminate all of the words that could possibly be offensive from my vocabulary and stop there. Then I'm a good person. Instead of changing our material reality, that the violence in language is part of a broad pattern of violence and invisibility and erasure is part of that.
5: Yeah, sort of to add to that, also thinking about like the idea or rather like the myth of the, good white person in Harry Potter and like how that sort of like like absolves especially the trio of any moral responsibility or personal responsibility for any of the things that are happening in the book that we read as allegories for race and racism and white supremacy and like as and, like, I can only speak from being a white reader, but, like, as, like, a white child reading the book, like, the message is that these things are bad, but it's also not your responsibility to do anything about it because, like, you're a good white person if you, as you're saying, like, get these words out of your language or, like, acknowledge that something wrong is happening. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes.
4: (laughs) So I have a completely unrelated question. Great. Um... So just thinking about like the actual school of Hogwarts and how it's set up and how like J.K. Rowling writes about it of like people either have natural ability at like things like when Harry gets on the team and he's the best flyer ever and you're like seriously like or just or in their classroom right of like how people learn um, and like the lack of Support for 11 year olds who are starting boarding school for the first time and like academics. For it, You can tell I'm a teacher and this is what I'm, I'm fixated on. Um, I was wondering if you had thoughts about that of like how characters are portrayed as, as intelligent or unintelligent. Um, yeah.
0: C- can you repeat louder or more clearly the very last piece of what you just asked how something intelligent or unintelligent? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I have an auditory processing disability. The acoustics of this room are terrible. And if I can't see your lips clearly, I do not understand what you're saying, um, which is a wonderful part of my hidden disabilities. And by wonderful, I mean sometimes horribly inconvenient. Um, I guess one, one thing... Yeah, yes?
4: Can I add one more
0: to my question? Sure.
4: The other thing I think about as in my classroom, I'm trying to make speech-to-text normalized so that everybody can hear and take notes in a more comfortable way and write papers, is the technology. Why are the, does everybody not have a quick quotes quill to take, help them take notes or to help like, give visual cues to students of what teachers are saying? That seems like a great idea. <laughs> yeah.
0: A really short answer, because I've been talking a lot, I feel like, is uh, that... One thing that I didn't talk about as much is how many folks that are disabled in different ways, but particularly learning disabled people, really glommed on to Neville Longbottom as a disabled character, written as somebody who clearly has some type of a learning or a cognitive disability and is struggling academically in a way that is familiar to many of us. And again, that falls into that category of here's an implicit representation Instead of one that is explicitly named, and the implicit representation did actually a halfway decent job, whereas the explicit ones are uh, very lacking, to put it nicely. And um, I think one of the things that, like you say, is not actually pulled about uh, pulled out is that people learn differently and are struggling in different ways. Because we really only see a handful of examples. There's um, actually, if I recall correctly, and someone correct me if my, if my memory of this is wrong, um, law school has checked a lot of things out of my brain, um, is that the, the, the two, um, firstly, there's Dudley Dursley, and then there's the two uh, kids who follow around Draco Malfoy, whose names I don't remember. Crabbe and Goyle. Them. <laughs> I, I, I missed that because auditory processing because the... Crabbe and Goyle thank you. So yeah so crab and Goyle and Dudley Dursley are all basically as I remember it portrayed in this trope of the dumb stupid kid who like is a, the dumb stupid fat kid very specifically thank you for reminding me of that piece too and that fatness and disability have to go together and that if you're a bully it's because you're dumb and fat and stupid and... Um, Other than those examples, and Hermione as being this genius kid, and Neville as a kid that's really struggling and also sort of falls into the fat and stupid genre, but not a bully... are the only real representations we have that like not everybody learns the same way. Like We don't know if everybody else is more or less doing the same or not. We only get glimpses of what grades people get when they take their owls and their newts. And we otherwise don't really know. And we, we don't know how people are doing in the classroom much at all beyond those examples. And that um, makes me just think, you know, the answer to that is fan fiction, clearly. More fan fiction. <laughs>
5: Um, I just want to point towards um, two other sets of characters so um, Fred and George I think are really wonderful I know right who we often fail to spend enough time on in the podcast even though we both love them um, but Fred and George the baby's crying so, uh, focusing up the baby was being cute I apologize uh, <laughs> Uh, Fred and George are characters who are represented throughout the first half of the series as being bad at school. And that's what we know about them. They are they are, you know, they're badly behaved. They they obstruct the learning experience of others. And once they leave school, which they do voluntarily at an early age, there's this revelation that they're in fact incredibly talented wizards um, who were deeply unserved by the schooling system at Hogwarts, and that as soon as they are placed in a scenario where they are allowed to sort of govern their own learning experience, they become these sort of prodigies, right? And even Hermione, who is like the great voice of institutionalized education, (laughs) says when she first goes into their new joke shop, she says like, this is really sophisticated magic. And she's surprised because she assumed that because they didn't do well at school, they must be bad wizards. And so that's you know a little moment that we're given to show us that, yeah, actually, Hogwarts is not serving everyone. Um, and then the other interesting thing, I think, is to remember that Luna is a Ravenclaw. And that most of our interactions with Luna as a character are about her being flighty, um, and about her believing things and having, you know, understandings of the world around her that from the, from the perspective of our narrator are incorrect and silly and, you know, obviously, uh, her being, um, you know, a a lunatic to draw on her, the origins of her word, of her name, um, but Luna is in the house for people who are deeply intellectual. Uh, and so there's another... I think there's a space in there as well to think about how Luna also models for us a different way of being smart. And so I think there's there's little bits in there to say we are shown that Hogwarts has some... <laughs> hey guys, this is a revelation. Uh, there are some failings in the pedagogy <laughs> modeled at Hogwarts. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: I think one of the other issues with the Fred and George example that you point out is the narrative is saying, oh, it's okay because they really are smart in the end. And it's still placing a value on some conceptualization of smartness or intelligence, which at its core is actually pretty ableist by saying that, okay, well, if we're going to challenge it a little and say academic success isn't the only way to prove that you're smart, but they're, but they're okay because they still proved that they were smart. And I think that's another bit of the issue
5: yeah, that's really important as well, that the actual idea of having characters who are just not smart characters but are still like, valuable, intriguing, well-fleshed-out, fully-realized characters is something that the series gives us no space
0: for. I mean, there's the idea that Neville redeems himself at the end, but like it's because, oh, so you did something that someone who was more or less cognitively neurotypical could have done and therefore you proved you were a valuable person by engaging in armed combat but like prior to that we all just assumed you were a dunce literally for the whole series that you're you're the slow kid so for us as disabled kids it's the kid that was also on the short bus also taken out of the classroom and taken to the special ed resource room and and that's you know that sort of plays into the exact same thing
4: Hi, um, I just have a question about Hagrid and his uh, being mixed giantism and wizard, but then also his having an umbrella with which he has his wand in it, which has been broken. It's not clear if it was broken to stop him from performing magic or it was broken somehow or other, but I want your comment about that, uh, his disability not being able to perform magic and being mixed race and his hiding of his magical ability.
5: It's fascinating that Hagrid is this character who is our one half giant and also can't do magic, right?
3: Yeah.
5: yeah, can't do magic, but actually can do magic, but has to hide it and also hides it in this object that's wand-like, but not quite a wand. So
0: what's happening? Okay, and now that I think I sort of understand the question, so one thing I want to comment... I am 100% East Asian. I'm not a mixed race person. Um, but as an East Asian person of color, I've definitely heard from other East Asians and from other people of color, Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and mixed race, of the phenomenon of having to hide that we're smart or of having to hide that we're skilled at something because it's, it's 20 times as threatening to the white men that dominate basically every academic field than even if a white woman shows it. Like, white women, I've heard, will say things like, oh, I have to try to dumb myself down in order to be, like, not treated as, like, a threat or something. And for many people of color, that's 20 times worse, regardless of gender. But then it's worse if you're a woman of color or a non-binary, feminine-presenting person of color. And um, that's what that, your comment just brings out for me, right, is that... um, something that is treated as a desirable trait or as a trait indicating value or worth in a white person, particularly a white man, has to be tamped down or hidden. If it's a woman, particularly a woman of color or another person of color of a different gender. And that it, because it becomes more scary and destabilizing to a white supremacist, patriarchy and that's what I'm thinking about um, as far as the broken wand thing my my reading when I read through the books for the very first time was that his wand was broken to stop him to punish him for being who he was and being able to use magic and that he was never allowed to take it up again
2: mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah that um, being expelled from Hogwarts in essentially the third grade um, was supposed to was supposed to essentially stop him from participating in the magical community and essentially impose upon him a magical disability um, and i think I, I think that hagrid is a really fascinating example of that we didn't really we didn't really talk about ahead of time in the ways in which he represents disability and um, like a neurotypicality um, because he is he is read and positioned as different and as other in a in a number of ways with our with our main protagonist and like at the same time his the ways in which he is represented as being monstrous are always being balanced out with his extreme gentleness and kindness and um and and really interesting um forms of presenting femininity so like the fact that he has an umbrella but that it's a polka dot it's a polka dot umbrella it's a pink umbrella but doesn't it have polka dots yeah anyway it does the point is we all know that it's pink um and the fact that he wears a frilly apron when he is cooking and the fact that when he adopts a dragon he calls he calls himself mummy so there are ways in which Hagrid performs a kind of like very familial affectionate loving Feminine presence that is, I think, in a lot of ways supposed to tamper what would otherwise be seen as his monstrosity because he is a big, scary, hairy man who does not have, does not read as intelligent in the ways that Hogwarts wants us to perceive intelligence and has been kicked out of school and so hasn't been allowed to learn in an institutionally. Mandated kind of way and has had to kind of like make his existence. And you like, you really have to ask yourself, like, what could Hagrid have done if Dumbledore hadn't hired him to be the groundskeeper of Hogwarts? Like, he's not allowed to get an education. And everything that we have come to learn about the way that the Magical Society works is that you get jobs based on your grades, and your grades are determined in your Owl year and then in your Newt year and then you go on and do some kind of apprenticeship. So if he's kicked out of school, anyway. And I think another thing that's really fascinating and maybe goes back to what Lydia was saying earlier about uh, about, um, disability and uh, incarceration rates, is that Hagrid is also one of our few protagonist characters who has spent time in jail. And so I think what's happening is we're seeing a lot of different intersections of, um, of uh, oppression happening in a single character. He's still represented as white, though, except not in the production of The Cursed Child, which is a really interesting um, casting choice, which we can talk about afterwards. Um, but, but anyway, going back to my point, is that he remains a white character or is sort of represented as a white character who becomes a metaphor for all of these other forms of oppression instead of there just being these other kinds of marginalizations existing in the world I think is what I'm getting at It's instructive but still problematic Yeah,
0: yeah And and I mean one of the things in which it's instructive is how men of color particularly East Asian men, South Asian men, okay every kind of man black men, Latinx men um, are Subject to white supremacy and the white gaze is through feminization, as though oh, being made to be feminine or effeminate is taking away from your masculinity, which is both patriarchal and white supremacist. Um, oh, I, I think we—if if you had a, you had a comment to make, if it was very short, we can probably take it because it's not eight thirty-eight. I do, I do. Okay.
5: Um I was just wondering how uh participating in this podcast and like doing these panels has changed your own methods of pedagogy um so I just want to hear that
2: you're a teacher now
5: <laughs> yeah yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah
5: i I am a teacher now um that's my job um oh, okay, so here's my number one favorite thing about. Uh, what the podcast has taught me about teaching, which is that teaching works 150% better when it is based around uh, the presumption that every student in the room with you brings forms of expertise, embodied knowledge, experience, um, learning that are not yours and that are as valid to whatever you're doing in that classroom as what you know and what you're trying to teach them. Um and that if you assume I am the possessor of knowledge and you, the people before me, are the those who are not possessed of knowledge and my job is to somehow get what's inside my brain to go and be inside your brain, um, that's going to work for maybe two students, no matter the size of your classroom. Um, and those two students are probably going to be students um, whose parents went to university, who are middle class, who are probably white, who who have been set up in all kinds of ways to learn under very specific scenarios. Um, but that if you come into the space and say like, OK, so I here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to get out of this time we're going to spend together. Um, what do you want to do? What do you want to get out of this? What do you already know coming in here? Um, what matters to you in the conversations that we're going to have? Uh, then all of a sudden you get to have a sort of collective experience of learning and unlearning. Um, and that's hard for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that classrooms are such coercive spaces that it is you like can't single-handedly undo the, the learned behaviors that students have acquired from years and years of being told to sit still and not talk and write down everything you say because you're standing at the front of the room. Um, so there's a ton of collective unlearning that has to happen, but but having this podcast where we share our readings of Harry Potter with a listenership of people who have read Harry Potter way more than we have (laughs) and way, and way more carefully and also bring into their readings as everybody does a whole set of experiences that are not ours and a whole set of knowledges that are not ours means that we are constantly shaken out of the position of expertise, out of the position of being the knowers um, and put in a position instead of, of conversation, um, And as a result, have learned, I think, just a ton more um, from not presuming that we're the ones who come in knowing in the first place.
2: I would say that that is true. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Um, I think that another thing that that doing the podcast and these books have taught me is that there are a variety of ways in which you can um, use literature to talk about things that are happening in the real world and connecting with people. Um, but the main thing is that um, as a as an instructor, I try to remember that m- my class is not necessarily the most important thing in these students' lives. That they may be like dismantling the patriarchy outside of the classroom, and that if they haven't done the reading, that shouldn't be my problem and I don't need to lose any sleep over it. (laughs) Maybe they're doing something better.
0: I think I've been on a podcast exactly once before this and it wasn't about Harry Potter Uh, but as a professor for the first time, I've taught classes before but never to college students. This is the first time for me. Um, I have learned that basically both as a student and as a professor there are some things that will always suck and that As a professor, um, I am just as bad a procrastinator as I am as a student, and my students who are in the room now know what I mean by that, and I will not comment further. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so I'm going to propose
5: that we wrap up. Um, I know that we're not quite at 8.30, but um, I would love, I think we would all love to just get the opportunity to carry on the conversation and and meet some of you, Um, so... Thank you all so much. Thanks for coming. Um, Thanks to my absolutely delightful and brilliant fellow panelists. Um, This was really, really fun. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us for episode row of Witch Please. All episodes can be streamed live from our website, ohwitchplease.ca. Or download it using the Podcatcher app of your choice. We'd like to send our biggest, most enthusiastic thanks to the folks who made this episode possible by reuniting us all the way across the continent in Boston. Thank you, organizers Emma and Elise. Amazing, you're so enthusiastic. Judy and Bobby and the whole Tufts Podcasting Network. It was so great to hear your work. And especially Lydia Brown for sharing the stage with Marcel and Hannah. If you'd like to learn more about Lady's work, we've included a link to their website on our website. Marcel and Hannah are going to try really hard to see fantastic beasts and where to find them this very fortnight. But will that be the next episode? Only time will tell. So until next time Doot do do doot doot later, witches.